Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Let's, let's begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that you would join us today with your spirit, with your angels, with your presence, that our minds can pierce through the fog of this world, that we can see you clearly today. We have members of our class who are suffering from loss. We pray that your angels and spirit will go to, to comfort them. We, we think of my mom, whose who's, who's mom uh, died recently. We think of um, the Ritlands, who Kathy Ritland's father has just recently passed, and, and other members as well who are struggling with illness. And we just ask that you would uh, bring your comfort in accordance with your will. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing lesson number 12 in our quarterly, The Prophetic Gift. And the uh, lesson title uh, this week is The Blessing of the Prophetic Gift. Somebody read the, the memory verse for us, please. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. And what, what do you think about that text? Any, any thoughts when you hear that text? Anything come to mind? What would be included? What would be included in that? He does nothing. Or warnings. Okay. So, so would you think that the second coming of Christ would occur without, without Christ revealing it through his prophets? This makes me think that the, the entire government of God is, is open to inspection. And nothing, nothing is hidden. Nothing is secret. So the heavenly government. I think that's probably true if we were in heaven. Why, why don't we see it now? Do you think God keeps things hidden from his angels? From the, from the heavenly host? No. So we have a difficult time seeing it now because... So we see through a glass dimly. What is the dim glass that we're piercing through, trying to see through? Lies. Lies, sin, distortions, uh, self-centeredness, uh, something wrong with the way we think. Yeah. Well, there are even some things that the angels don't understand. Some things uh, that the angels don't understand completely regarding... Well, especially at his crucifixion and death and, and how he came and lived as a man. I don't think they really fully comprehend that. Um, Interesting. Interesting. I think it was clear that the angels were struggling to understand the truth about God after Lucifer started his rebellion. When, when the redeemed sing the song of Moses and Lamb, the angels can't sing that song. They don't understand it. They haven't lived through it. Yeah, I think that's a different question, though, because that's a song of experience. And I, I think the thing before us was, do they understand God's government now and how God's government works? Not the experience of a sinner being saved so much. But do they understand God's character, his nature, his method? I think that, that, that there was a time when they didn't fully clearly understand it. This is why Christ came. But after the cross, remember Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world would be cast out. Out of where? Where was the prince of, at the cross? Where was the prince of the world cast out from? Hearts and minds of people. Hearts and minds of people. But yet that hasn't really happened on earth yet. Did it happen somewhere else? Isn't that when the earth was redeemed? When was Satan cast down to earth and restricted to the earth, to the earth, and not able to travel around the rest of the universe? When did that happen? In the 
At the cross. What, what restricted him after the cross? No one else would listen to him. Yeah. Was God, does God deploy you know, sentinel angels with, with power and might and flaming swords to put a, you know, a, a barrier around the planet Earth and hold him here by force? Or was it after the cross all the intelligence of the, universes, of the rest of the universe had their questions about God so answered that they wouldn't listen to anything Satan had to say anymore? But don't you think they are, there's an ongoing understanding? Yes, I do. There's an ongoing understanding about the salvation, about redemption, about transformation, about how we get to heaven, of all that stuff I do. But I think the, 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 the trustworthiness of God has been cleared up in the minds of the angels. Yeah, don't you think? Yeah. But, but in our minds, we still struggle with that question, don't we? Here on earth, aren't we still struggling with that? Yeah. So, so the question from the lesson, uh, and, and I appreciate you bringing that up because that's such a good thing to kind of tease out, where, because it points out to us that, that what Christ did was not just for earth beings only. What Christ did had implications for beings beyond this earth. And it tells us that in the Bible. We've got Colossians, you know, all things in heaven and earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. So we have a good Bible basis for that. But in our Amos text, it talks about he doesn't do anything unless he reveals his secret to the, his servants, the prophets. So, so what greater secret is there than, than Christ's coming again? I mean, isn't that the great secret we're all wondering about? Do you think the secret of Christ's return is going to be revealed to his prophets before he comes? Or does it mean that the second coming has already been prophesied about by prophets in the past, so it's not going to happen for the last day generation. There won't be any prophets in the last day. Or does the Amos text, do you think it could mean that in the last day generation, before Christ comes, they'll rise up prophets, people with prophetic gift, to inspire and prepare the people for the end? What do you think? Pour out my spirit on your sons and your daughters. Okay, so the Joel, and I've got that in the notes, a great, great quote, Joel 2, 28 through 32. After, a, afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams, young men will see visions, and so forth and so on. Does that sound like a prophetic gift? Is that only for, is, is that, does that text, Joel, apply to one 17-year-old woman in 1844? No. Or does it apply to more than one person? Well, to prophesy means to speak for God. Yes, to speak for God. So will there be a group of people at the end of time who this gift is poured out upon who are to stand up and speak for God? Yes. Well, interesting tag. Yes, go ahead. Aren't we being promised a latter rain at the end times? The, the latter rain, yes. The pouring out of the Spirit. There were, there were early rain with disciples after they was ready. At Pentecost. Mm-hmm. And the, at the end, there's supposed to be another Malachi tells us that the S-U-N, son, S-U-N, son of righteousness is rising with healing in his wings in the King James. The Hebrew word there that's translated wings is, is actually means the things that extend out from. What is it that extends out from the S-U-N? Rays or beams, right? And so most of the newer translations says the S-U-N, the son of righteousness, is rising with healing in his beams or healing in his rays. What do you think that means? In connection with your comment about the latter rain. Do you think there's a connection between the Holy Spirit being poured out at the end of time and the son of righteousness rising at the end of time with healing in his rays? Do you think they're connected in some way? The Holy Spirit's called the spirit of? Truth. Do you think the sun of righteousness rising is, and those rays are rays of light, rays of truth? Do you think that that, that could be that? 
And, and, and those rays of light and truth are to do what? Shine. Yeah, shine where? In our hearts. In our hearts and minds. To, for what purpose? So that we, so that we reflect more of His yeah, light. Reflecting for the world those rays of His truth. Yeah, so... So the rays of light and truth to, to remove distortions, lies, misunderstandings. Think about when the, at the first reign, Pentecost, they saw tongues of fire, but no one got physically burned. What got burned was jealousy, animosity, misunderstanding, confusion about God got burned out of the hearts. And they came into a unity. And they were able to go out in power to speak the truth about God. The, the, the rays of light were shining in their minds and hearts. Is God preparing a people right now to stand up right now in this time in history with that power? Let's try. Check out Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 1. And we're going to compare it to our memory verse, Amos 3.7. It says, And after I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or the sea and any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. And notice what he says. Do not harm the land or the sea or tree until we put the seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Now, compare that with our memory text. What's our memory text say? Surely the Lord does not does nothing unless He reveals His secrets to His servants, the prophets. We're going to seal the servants of our God. You're going to find, if you do a little research in your Bible, that every time God speaks of His servants, His servants are the prophets. Over and again. Look over in Revelation chapter 10, verse 7. It says, but in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet. When is the days of the seventh angel about to sound? What time in human history is that? Right about the time we're living right now. The seventh angel is about to sound. The mystery of God will be accomplished. What is the mystery of God? Did anybody know? The mystery of God, it says in Ephesians, the mystery of God, Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the mystery of God, regenerating us, reproducing us to be like Jesus, healing us, removing the distortions of character. So, and the seventh angel is about to sound, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So, Revelation 7, are we talking about there's a, there's a time coming, or, or God is waiting, his angels holding back the four winds of strife, saying, hold, 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 until his servants... This group of people that get numbered symbolically as 144,000 are so settled into the truth, intellectually and spiritually, they cannot be moved. Is this what it's talking about? That he's going to have a group of people that are going to be able to stand up and speak the truth about God. Have you ever heard people ask, how can Christ possibly come? Because there's so many people who are undecided. So many people still struggling with, with trying to figure out. And, and there's new kids being born every day. I mean, how can everybody really come to a decision? Have you heard this argument? This is the purpose of loosening of the four winds. When God loosens the four winds, when the angels let loose, is God himself causing troublesome times? No. We have an example of this in the book of Job. Was there an angel? Were there angels holding back around Job what we could say four winds of strife? Heads of protection. When God loosed those his angels, 
What happened? Notice, a storm came. A storm. Nature went out of control. A storm came and killed his kids. Caused a terrible calamity. The building collapsed under the weight of this tornado or whatever it was. Now, who was bringing that storm? Does that give us insight that that satanic powers can influence weather? So, what what do I read here is happening? If you read down further in chapter 7 of of Revelation, you'll see that after those 144,000, there's a huge multitude from every nation, kindred, tribe, and people that are saved. God is waiting for a people to be so settled into the truth about him that nothing will shake them out of it. They're ready to be his witnesses. They have been sealed. They're going to stand up and, and have this gift to be able to speak rightly about God. And then the four winds loosen. And when the four winds loosen, troublesome times happen. And what happens to people in troublesome times? Do they step out of their mundane rut of daily living? Get up, go to school, go to work, pay the bills, get up, go to school, go to work, pay the bills. Do they, do they get, step out of that and step back and go, wait a minute, something's going on. What's happening? And those troublesome times, that sealed group, those prophets of God, are going to be on the scene to declare the truth, Christ is coming. And here's what's really happening. And from their witness, a great multitude from every nation, tribe, kindred, and people are going to be saved. Yes? Could this sealing process be the same as the cleansing of the sanctuary? Oh, did you hear the question? She asked, could the sealing process be the same as the cleansing of the sanctuary? Uh, That's a great question. I'm going to have to pull up my Bible now on that one. That's good. Okay. Malachi, chapter 3, starting in verse 1. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. What What do refiner's fires and launderer's soaps do? They cleanse, they clean. And notice what gets cleansed. Like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Who are the Levites? Priesthood. The priesthood. Know ye not that ye are a priesthood? A holy priesthood? These are that group of people. These are the people who trust God. So yes, this... And you ever wonder, have you heard the statement, it says in Scripture that judgment starts with the house of God. God. Now, how have you always heard that statement? We get judged first. Our names come up first, and our records get reviewed first, and, you know, damnation or or salvation gets pronounced by God in favor or against us first. Is that how you've heard it? No. Judgment starts with the house of God. Remember the the Daniel text? Daniel chapter 7. Verse 21, I watched this horn was waging war against the saints, defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints most high. And see, there's that, this is the NIV version, pronounced judgment. Anybody have a King James version or a good news version? Read it out, read it out of the King James, verse 22. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the most high, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Think that through. Pronounced judgment in the NIV or in the King James Judgment was given. The New King James says made in favor of. Yeah, the made in favor. So they're going back to more like the NIV. 
King James makes it sound like the saints are given discernment. Exactly right. Given judgment, they're given. There's other versions. It goes either way. You you have to make your interpretation in the translation. Does it mean that God sits and makes a pronouncement or judgment, or does it mean that the little horn warred against the saints until the saints had been given discernment or given judgment to be able to break free from the controlling power of the little horn? Well, how do you know? Second Thessalonians talks about. The man of sin. Don't anyone deceive you that the second coming is coming until, because we know it's not going to come until that, that man of perdition, that man of sin arises and blasphemies and does all these terrible things and sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, this is after Christ's ascension. Does anybody believe whatever that little man of sin is, he went up into heaven and sat in a temple up there and throw God off his throne up there? No. No, which temple is he throwing himself in? The mind temple. So this, this man of sin, this rebellion is going to come, and he's going to enthrone himself in our minds, proclaiming himself with these distorted images of God, and he's going to wage war against the saints until the time comes that the saints are given judgment, until we have discernment, until the cleansing of the sanctuary comes. The Thessalonians text, let me, let me look it up for you. It's about healing our minds. 2 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 3, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day will not come until the, until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He opposes and exalts himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped and even sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Yes. And so I think you're exactly right. This whole settling in, this sealing, this cleansing, is all related to the cleansing of the sanctuary, the sanctuary in which the Spirit dwells. Yes. Dispensation of saying it's going to be the third temple in Jerusalem. Heard that one? Yeah. yeah. How do you get around that? I mean, how do we get around to convince them that's not? Got a whole, they have a whole large theology based on this whole dispensationalism and Daniel's 70th week and the temple's going to be rebuilt and, you know, Jews already now have all the materials ready, gathered together. Are you all familiar with what he's talking about? There is the belief among uh, many evangelical Christians that the prophecies of Daniel 8 through 9, in which the 70 weeks were allotted to the Jewish nation, uh, 490 years, and in the midst of the 70th week it says the oblations and the sacrifices will cease, that, um, that we in our church interpret that the 70-week period expired in AD 34 with the stoning of Stephen and the gospel went out to the Gentiles, so the 490-year period. Um, allotted to the Jewish nation to finish the work and bring in righteousness expired then. The, mo- much of the Christian community is waiting for some future time to be fulfilled. And it hasn't happened yet. And it's waiting for, the, for another temple to be built on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem uh, by human hands. And that, that when they start offering sacrifices again over in Jerusalem, that there'll be a three and a half year period in which the Jewish nation again is God's chosen. It's passed from the Jews to the Christian church back to the Jewish nation again. And they become God's chosen vessel on earth for taking the, the gospel to the world. Um, he asks, how do you deal with that? There are many places you can, you can deal with that particular theology, but I tend not to get caught into the weeds of their distortion. I tend to back up and, uh, and, and approach it from the great controversy perspective about God, because ultimately it doesn't really matter whether you believe 
whether there's going to be a split dispensation or not. What matters is whether you have a trust relationship with God and believe in a God who is like Jesus says. Because when the time comes to the end, let me put it this way. How many believe when Christ arrives and we see him in the clouds? At that moment, there'll be anybody on the earth that understands correctly 100% of everything in the Bible. No, we won't get all the little details of how this prophecy interpreted here meant that. We won't have all that right at that time. We'll have a lot to learn. But all those who were saved have come to understand the God of love and have come to have a change of heart so that they love others more than themselves. Revelation chapter 12, these are they who do not uh, love their life so much as to shrink from death. And there will be two groups of people that are saved from every nation, kindred, tribe, and people. One group is saved from every nation, kindred, tribe, and people. And those are the ones who love others more than themselves. Those that are lost, though, are those that are part of that beast system. And what's the beast system described as? You can either buy nor sell, save those who have the mark of the beast. So we're willing to coerce, use power, use force, intimidate, dominate, control of the people. Those are the character of the people lost versus those who love others more than self. So I think there will be people that are going to be saved when Christ comes who are expecting the you know, Jews to, to have sacrifices for three and a half years in Jerusalem. And I wouldn't even say it couldn't happen. I think it very well may happen and be part of the grand last deception. I really do. As things unfold. So I, if people are interested in studying the details of that, the Bible, when you actually get into the details, really um, destroys that whole, whole thinking. But you have to let the Bible speak for itself in that. All right, let's, let's, just, let's move on to some other questions. Um, so the latter rain falling to prepare a people ready to speak. Do you want to be part of that people? Amen. Yes, ask the Lord. I mean, he wants the people. He's a, he's a, you know, it says, who's going to go? It says, send me, Lord. Send me. I mean, tell the Lord, send me, Lord, send me, prepare me to be one of those people. Sunday, top question. Somebody read that for us. And then the first paragraph right after it. Why did God elect Israel as his special people? God chose Israel to be his witnesses. All nations of the earth were to share in the blessings that he was to bestow on his people. Israel was to show forth his praise, declare his glory among the nations, and be a light to the Gentiles. And I think that's well said. Don't you agree with that? I think the lesson really stated that very nicely. That uh, the purpose of Israel was to be this witness, to reveal the truth about God, to bring all the nations and the Gentiles into a relationship with God. This was their purpose. The question, here's this group of people, blessed by God with his presence. Imagine if on, if on Sabbath we get together to have service and, and the Shekinah glory in the cloud comes down on the pulpit each week. It's... Pretty kind of cool, isn't it? I mean, yeah, they had this privilege going on there at the beginning of their of their sojourn after their exodus. Um, they they were blessed with the written word of God, the the various teaching tools of the sacrificial services and the sanctuary, all these teaching tools to help them learn. All these things God had given. The prophets were there to to guide and direct. The question: How did it all go wrong? What happened? It did go wrong, didn't it? Horribly. Yeah, so what happened? What went wrong? Well, they, they had preconceived ideas of how the prophecies were to be fulfilled. And when Christ came, they didn't recognize him. Preconceived ideas about the prophecy. What do you think underpinned those preconceived ideas? The, the false teachings. About? God himself. Lies about God. See, did the children of Israel struggle with idolatry? Did they go into into fertility cults and 
astroth poles, and, and I mean, through the Old Testament, you find them constantly going into idolatry. And how did God respond to their idolatry? He sent prophets to bring them back to him. So he just he did send prophets. No question, he sent prophets. Did he send more than prophets? Signs and wonders. Signs, wonders. We we got the fire coming down at Mount Carmel. Yeah, that's a sign and wonder. Yes. Abandoned them to their own ideas, and then the Babylonians came and took them to captivity for seventy years. Right? Yeah, he sure did. Now, this is pretty stern stuff. Now, how did they view it? Did they view that they were simply abandoned, or did they view God was doing this to them? They took it as a punishment. God was inflicting this upon them. After they came out of Babylonian captivity, did they struggle after that with going back into all these cults? Not too much. There was leadership. I mean, there might have been some individuals, but the leadership had determined that we aren't going back there again. You remember uh, Nehemiah? Do you remember how in the aftermath of the Babylonian captivity, when they were rebuilding the temple, a lot of these people came out with foreign wives? Mm-hmm. What did Nehemiah have them do? Made them divorce. All the foreign wives and their children were sent away. Did you know that? I thought we weren't supposed to divorce. All of them sent away. Nehemiah actually started ripping the hair out of the men's heads. You read about it. Through a spiritual divorce with the Jewish nation. Started sending them all away. Because we aren't going to be infected by those cults anymore. And then they set up a hedge of rules. We're going to be holy people. We're going to keep the rules. And so we're not going to just go by the ten. We're going to get a whole list of additional rules to help us keep the ten. 613. 613 additional rules to help us make sure we don't fall away anymore. We're going to make sure we do this this time. And they became very, very regulated. Which caused greater anxiety, fear and insecurity, evil surmising, jealousy, sickness of heart. They began to judge each other, criticize each other. They became a hardened and hard-hearted people. And one of the founders of our church wrote in Mount of Blessing, page 123, the following. The effort to earn salvation by one's own works inevitably leads men to pile up human exactions as a barrier against sin. For seeing that they fail to keep the law, they will devise rules and regulations of their own to force them to obey. All this turns the mind away from God to self. His love dies out of the heart, and with with it perishes love for the fellow man. A system of human invention, with its multitudinous exactions, will lead its advocates to judge all who come short of the prescribed human standard. The atmosphere of selfish and narrow criticism stifles the noble and generous emotions and causes men to become self-centered judges and petty spies. Boy. How would you describe the, the, the way the Jewish nation was working when Christ arrived on earth? <laughs> yeah, they weren't having trouble with idolatry then. Did they have trouble with which day of the week was the Sabbath when Christ came? No. Uh, which foods they should eat? Whether they should tithe or not? The sanctuary message. I mean, they had all of these things, yet they had this human regulation that crushed love out of the heart. So what went wrong? They devised their own rules to conform behavior. So let's move forward in history. What about Christianity? First off, what was the purpose of the Christian church called into existence for? Same thing as the Jews. To be a light to the world. How have we done? What went wrong? 
Let's look at the history of the Christian church. After the apostolic church, what went wrong? History repeats itself. Did distortions... Paganism into it, and then we integrated uh, the pagan philosophy of coercion and, and do it our way, or we'll torture you until you admit you're a heretic. Initially, the Apostolic Church was, if you read in the Book of Acts in the New Testament Church, it was a, it was a church that was functioning very much like God wanted it to function in the first few years. As it went along, converts were expanding. There were martyrs who were giving their life freely for others, sacrificing self. Love was growing in the hearts of people. And Satan counterattacked. Constantine converted. And as emperor, converted the entire world, basically. His entire realm converted overnight to Christianity. Now imagine that you've been raised your whole life worshiping some fertility goddess or god. Diana in Greece. Astra, Baal. You've lived, uh, you've, you've, you even are a, a priest or priestess at that cult temple. Your whole life. And the crier from Rome comes. An edict from Constantine that all pagan religions are now outlawed and we must be Christian on the pain of death. What are you going to do? Have you had a heart conversion? No way. So what do you do? Diana becomes Mary. And you convert your entire system of paganism under the cloak of Christian language. And the church became pagan. And the Dark Ages soon followed. The minds were darkened. And what happened through the Dark Ages? Do you, has anybody studied what, what religion was like in the Dark Ages? It was a horrible... I mean, talk about... It was, it's not called the Dark Ages for no reason. It was dark. You know what indulgences were? It's not just paying in the aftermath. You, you commit a sin and, and, and afterwards you go to the priest and he says, pay f- you know, five pieces of gold and your sin's forgiven. You could prepay. You could prepay. You got your lusting after your neighbor's wife and you want to murder the neighbor and take the wife. You go to the priest and he goes, well, that's a really bad sin. That's going to be five talents of gold. But you pay that ahead of time. Then you can do it and there's no sin against you anymore. <laughs> this happened in the Dark Ages. Of course, you've read about Martin Luther and how when he went to Rome and they were standing outside the steps there and about how the priests were collecting money and you put a coin in and then after the coin goes in the coffer for the church, you uh, climb each step and kiss each step on the way up and on each step you do an, 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 an uh, Our Father or a Hail Mary all the way up. And then you get a certificate that your grandfather has been released from purgatory and goes to heaven. And then the, the criers from the church would go through the communities, raise money, and they would have these drawings of flames and stuff and teach about the burning torments of hell. And then they would have a saying that was actually a common saying in the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages, and it would say something like this. Whenever a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. <laughs> what kind of a God do you think these people came to believe in? It was horrid. It was absolutely horrid. And so something happened. And of course, the Dark Ages is a terrible time of legalism, rules, exactions, meaningless rituals, judgmentalism, power and conversion, coercion over people. And a distorted and ugly picture of God. And what happened was Reformation. Reformation came and, and in the aftermath of Reformation, instead of a system in which we have to work 
to pay God. Instead of a system in which we have to earn God's approval, no more Hail Marys, Our Fathers, no more penance, no more indulgences, no more pilgrimage to holy lands to earn God's favor, no more need for the saints to pray the Father to beg Him off for us. No, no. Now, what do we have instead? Well, we have our penalty paid by Jesus' blood, so the Father won't be angry at us, and, won't, and His wrath has been assuaged, and, and He won't lash out and kill us anymore. Isn't that what the majority of Christianity is teaching? But don't worry, if you've confessed your sins, Jesus will apply His blood to your record book and erase it from heaven so the Father can't see it. It's distorted. It's twisted. It's still paganism at heart, an angry, wrathful God who must be paid off, bought off, and appeased. Christianity has been stuck. We have missed the good news of Jesus' victory and what it really means. That our hearts, our minds, our characters, the spirit temple can be cleansed and transformed. We can be renewed to be a people who live godly, loving lives on earth. So what about the SDA church? What was the purpose of this church? Why was it called into existence? To give the special message of coming Same reason as Jews and same reason as Christianity. He says same reason as the Jewish nation, same reason as Christianity. To tell the truth about God. Is there any special message that we as a Seventh-day Adventist people have to take to the world? Vegetarianism. Vegetarianism. <laughs> <laughs> and the health messages later in this week so maybe we'll get to talk about that same message that the Jews were given it's no different do we have a special message or are we taking the same message as the rest of Christianity has Jesus died to pay the penalty of your sin and if you accept that payment in your behalf you can have pardon and, and, and salvation written next to your name in heaven is that the message we have to take to the world how is that different than the rest of Christianity? The rest of the world doesn't really have the picture of the great controversy, like, like what we've been given to put the whole thing in the light of what's gone wrong. Yeah, exactly. The rest of the world doesn't understand that. How did sin break out in heaven? What was the issue over? What did perfect, unfallen, angelic beings who could interact with God face to face, what caused them to rebel against God? Believe lies. Believe lies about God told by Satan. Satan. The issue, and this is why you read in, in Romans chapter 3, verse 4, God, may you win your case when you take it into court. God was the one accused. And this is the message we have, the truth about God, revealed in the life of Jesus Christ. And all these other pagan theories of Christianity continue to permeate the distortion about God and keep us afraid of Him. Oh yes, we like Jesus, He's a friend that we can trust. But we sure don't want to go into God's presence without Jesus there holding our hand. We're still afraid of God. We don't trust Him. But Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. And God is working. He says all the universe is to be brought back under one head, even Jesus Christ. He is working to reconcile the whole universe back into oneness with God. Father, I pray that they will be one, as you and I are one. Me and you, you and them, all of us together again in unity. How can that happen if we're still afraid of Him, believing lies that He needs to be paid off to be kind? The message that we are to take to the world, we are to be unifiers, not dividers. Bridge builders, not ditch diggers. Communicating the truth about God in the setting of the great controversy. Preparing a world 
to see Jesus face to face. Isn't that our mission? How are we do it? A lot of silence. <laughs> well, I'll leave that with you because I think we can do better. I think we can do better. Um, Monday's lesson. Somebody read the first paragraph. Through the Father's instructions, Hebrew children were taught what God had done for his people in the past, how they, how they were to live in his presence, and what God's promises were for the future. They also were taught the skills they would need to be successful members of their community. It was, therefore, both an education and practical skills along with a spiritual and religious instruction. What do you think about that educational system? It's very good for the times. But we have a Bible basis for it, don't we? How would you like we practice that educational system today? Bible-based. Let's get back to the Bible. You get taught at home by your parents. And you get to learn the trade of your father and your mother. I'm glad it didn't work that way. I'd be a welder. And I didn't like welding. I didn't like getting my hands dirty. <laughs> my brother did. He loved that stuff. I didn't like it. Yeah. No, I'm glad that we have a different educational system today, don't you? Yeah. So from this, do we learn that there are instructions in the Bible, biblically-based instructions that are for a, a time and place, but not for all peoples and all times? Yes. Yeah. Can you think of any others that were for a time and place, Bible-directed, but they're not for all people and all time? Any others off the top of your head? Eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. An eye for an eye, limb for a limb, tooth for a tooth, life for a life. John the Baptist in the wilderness. Circumcision? Starting fires on Sabbath. Shouldn't do that. What was the punishment for that, by the way? Stoning. Stoning. You know, some people believe if you throw the, the light switch today, you're starting a fire, sparking. Should we stone people for throwing a light switch on Sabbath? I, I'm glad that was for a time and place. It's not for all people and all time. Um, ceremonial washings, phylacteries. Everybody know what phylacteries are? Phylacteries you take and, and you take a Bible verse and you scroll it up into a little wooden box and you tie that box on your arm and on your forehead and you carry the verses with you. When that command was given, was that meant figuratively or literally? Oh, that's a good question. And I think that's later, actually, in the, in the Wednesday's lesson when it talks about publishing. But in Deuteronomy 11, 18, it says, Fix these words on your hearts and minds, and then it says, Write them on the doorposts and, and carry them with you and all these other things. So where are we really to write the word? We now can do a better job since we have heart surgeons. We now can do a better job that we have heart surgeons. Heart surgeons, yeah. Maybe we can do, like, tattoo it and write it right on the heart. Okay, that would be nice, huh? Hey, you know, you probably could get some people lining up for that. Wonder what we could charge for that. Anything you wanted. Anything you wanted. We can write the Word of God on your heart directly now. A little tattoo right there. Interesting. I'm surprised it hasn't happened, actually, now that you say that. Yes, people get some real false security with that. It's on my heart. Real false security. How about women not speaking in church or teaching men? 
time and place. She says definitely time and place. Okay. Yeah, it's good. There are people who believe it, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. But see, they haven't learned this lesson of, of taking Scripture and understanding what was time and place versus what's applicable to all people in all times. But let's turn the, the question on its head. Were there th- examples taught in Scripture that would be good for us to continue to today, but we've wandered away from? I, the first one that came to my mind, and, and uh, I want to share it with you. that the church leadership is not made up of seminary graduates. In Christ's day, who was the church leadership made up of? Doctors. Luke was a doctor. Thank you. Tax Tax collectors. Fishermen. Regular people. And only one theologian we would put among them. Paul. Do you notice how our church has formulated a process where all leadership have to be seminary graduates? Well, there was a church right prior to Christ's coming that had that same uh, uh, approach. The Jewish nation, in order to be a leader in, Jew, in, in Jewish nation, you had to be a, basically a seminary graduate. And what was the difficulty in the Jewish nation at that time? Well, our sermon today uh, talk, mentioned that familiarity breeds contempt. That was in our sermon today. Talking about Christians growing up in Christian education can sometimes become cold-hearted. Do you think our church would be better served if our leadership was more diverse? Yes. Unity and diversity. Yes, and I think we have wandered from that and we are paying a price for it, just like the Jewish nation did. And I think that we could take an example from Scripture and open up the leadership to our church to have people that are godly men that maybe aren't seminary trained to be in leadership. And I'm not applying for any jobs here, so don't vote me into anything. Okay? But I can think of some people right now that I know and I respect and I look up to who are not seminary trained who, who could really be valuable assets to our church and leadership. Look at the leadership of our church when it started. That's another good example. The, when the Adventist church was formed, how many of the leaders that formed this church were seminary trained? No. And do you notice as we move toward a seminary-only exclusive leadership have we, well, I'll leave you to draw your own conclusions on that. Is that because we changed our education process? Possibly. But I think it has to do, again, with exclusivity and, and, and um, our human vulnerability toward narcissism. We know better. It's even in the education system, in the Adventist education system. That's what he was mentioning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I just would suggest that maybe there's a biblical model that we could benefit as an organization if we open up leadership to godly men empowered by the Spirit who are not necessarily all seminary trained. Does that therefore mean, though, that seminary training is a bad thing? No. Not at all. I'm not suggesting seminary training is a bad thing. But I think diversity of perspective is more healthy than everybody being trained and inbred in the same organization with the same philosophies. I think we lose perspective that way. What about... Healthful living. Maybe we'll jump to to Tuesday's lesson. Tuesday's lesson, health reform. But there was a question at the bottom of the green section of the day before. Let's just just stick with that one question. What should a, and I've, I've rephrased the question, what should a Christian school look like today? And how should a Christian school be different from other schools? What What would you say? 
What is the priority, the highest priority of a Christian education? Love. Love. I like that. See, there's multiple ways to say the same thing. I like that. Love. We, we could say knowing God, which is also God is love. So love. We could say developing Christ-like character, which would be the new covenant, writing the law of love on the heart and mind, getting us back to a knowledge of God, which is love. I like that. Yeah. And this is out of the book, Education, page 17. Every human being created in the image of God is endowed with a power akin to that of the Creator. Akin to that of the Creator Himself. Individuality, power to think and to do. The men in whom this power is developed are, to, are the men who bear responsibilities, who are leaders in enterprise and who influence character. It is to be the work of true education to develop this power. What power? The power to think for yourselves. To train the youth to be thinkers and to not mere reflectors of other men's thoughts. Instead of confining their studies to that which men have said or written, let students be directed to the source of truth, to the vast fields open for research in nature and revelation. Let them contemplate the great facts of duty and destiny, and the mind will expand and strengthen. See, education is to expand your capabilities, your capacities, your, your ability for discernment, wisdom, decision-making. Instead of educated weaklings, institutions of learning may send forth men strong to think and to act. Men who are masters and not slaves of circumstances. Think that. Masters of a circumstance rather than slaves. In my office, I have people come to see me all the time. And I use this metaphor. Um, in life, life will throw lots of things at us. And, and we can metaphorically describe that as the waves on the ocean. What time, sometimes things are up and sometimes things are down. And sometimes they're storm-tossed. And the, Life is like the, like the ocean all over the place. And there are people who are like fishing bobbers. Whichever way the waves are going, that's where they're going. They're up, the waves are up, they're up. They're down, they're down. They're left, they're left, they're right, they're right. They don't have any direction of their own. They just go with the flow of life. That's not what we're talking about in true education. True education is developed thinkers who are like ships on the ocean. They have the ability to chart their course through the waves and storms of life to where they want to go. This is our challenge to become those thinkers, to process, to be masters of circumstances and not slaves. Men who possess breadth of mind, clearness of thought, and the courage of their own convic convictions. How does that education sound to you? Ideal. Pardon? Ideal. Ideal, yes. And i got to tell you, I will have to confess, I did not always receive that type of education as I grew up. Did anyone receive that consistently? No. I, there were many of my professors who didn't want me to think. And I you see a few people that went to school with me. And I was constantly in trouble. <laughs> because I asked a lot of questions. And I asked questions sometimes the teachers couldn't an answer. And they don't like to have questions they can't answer. And so I got in trouble. But I, I just didn't have a brain that could just shut down like that. It, was, it would make me irritable. Why, why do I have to do this? Because the Bible says so. Okay, but why does the Bible say so? Well, it just does. <laughs> you ever had those answers? Did they satisfy you? He, oh. he says, "Come and let us reason together." That's right, Isaiah one one twenty. Come, let us one eighteen through twenty. Come, let us reason together. That's exactly right. So, health reform. Then, health reform. Get a good education. Think for yourself. Learn to reason. Develop those skills. Health reform. What is the purpose of health reform and a healthy lifestyle? What is its purpose? So that we can be in the best possible condition for the Holy Spirit to communicate with us. So we can be in the best possible condition the Holy Spirit can communicate with us. For our healthy body brings a healthy brain, which makes it more efficient for 
God's usefulness. That's the primary purpose for the health message, no question about it. Have you heard, though, that there are people who get into the health message and they say, I'm going to keep this health message even if it kills me? <laughs> and it might. Yeah. They, they, yeah, and it might, she says, yeah. And I've seen people, I remember as a kid, uh, in a, as a kid in a small church of maybe 120 members, there was a couple that got onto the health message. And they went from you know, normal body weight to where they became, looked like concentration camp people. I mean, they became gray and ash in there. Their, their, their eyes sunk into their heads. And, and, I mean, they didn't even, they look sickly. Have you seen people that get so into restricting of the diet that that's what comes of them? Is that what God would have for us? No. So, Tim. Yes. Oh, yes, come on, yes. I had a, I had a good friend of mine that works at the Florida Conference. I was traveling from Orlando, but um, he had just looked at the uh, initial results of the Adventist Health Study. And no surprise to us, those that eat meat live the shortest. And to his shock and my shock, where the second group were the vegans. That should raise some eyebrows. But this is all preliminary, so I said, well, we need to look a little deeper. It's not a shock to me. When does the health message become unhealthy? When it becomes God, she says. What did you say? When it becomes the message, okay. So, so it becomes unhealthy spiritually when it becomes the, the we eat our way into heaven. Okay. When we're eating our way to heaven, it becomes spiritually unhealthy. When does it become physically unhealthy? Eat ourselves into Just like spiritually, what we talked about earlier, when we develop rules and lose sight of principles. You see, the principles of the health message are to do what you understand is best to maintain your physical health in the circumstances you find yourself. That's the principles of the health message. Do what you understand is best in the circumstances you find yourself to be healthy. But when we have rules that you never are ever to ever do such and such, then you find yourself in circumstances when that such and such, like you're not supposed to eat meat. Those preparing for translation will give up meat eating, and so we will not eat meat because we will be ready for translation. And what will we eat instead? Well, we'll eat soy. Because soy is healthier than meat, right? Mm. Well, actually, very interesting. Soy is very high in phytoestrogens. Phytoestrogens are estrogen-like substances made by soy. And there's an emerging data that suggests that women who eat lots of soy when pregnant with a male child and then feed that male child soy supplements immediately after birth for the first three months that the phytoestrogens are so high that they feminize the developing brain and increase the rate of homosexuality. More soy. I know my cancer is soy sensitive. There's emerging evidence that soy products inhibit an enzyme in the GI system called trypsin that we need for good digestion. And if you eat a lot of that, some people will have significant GI disturbance, you know, the GI symptoms of nausea and... and and indigestion and those types of things, and the um, and can have some nutritional absorption problems. Animal studies show that high soy diet inhibits normal growth, bone development, sexual development, and increases in fertility in animals that are fed high soy diets. Soy processing was a process the soy byproducts often results in the formate, formation of nitrates, and nitrates are carcinogenic. And uh, in order to flavor the soy byproducts, many artificial um, agents are added to, to flavor them. Yes. You know, we, uh, Mrs. White uh, has given us a lot of counsel on health and whatnot, and we look to her as an example of that. Yeah, she could not eat beans. 
Yes. Exactly. Um, phytic acid is contained in all seeds and hulls and binds to essential minerals such as calcium, zinc, magnesium, iron. And the zinc is especially good for, for, for brain thinking and sharp mental processing and memory. And diets that are solely legume-based result often in mineral deficiencies of these vital minerals. Slow cooking for most of the uh, legumes will uh, reduce the phytic acid, but not for soy. Cooking won't reduce it in soy. You have to ferment the soy. So fermented soy, and we like fermented things, don't we? Oh, yeah. Yes. yes. Fermented soy reduces this particular substance. So, again, what is the point? The point is, do we have rules that we never eat meat? What should be healthier, eating lots of soy or eating some wild, cold-water fish like salmon? Yes? I think the problem comes here when we're trying to concentrate on one thing. Who says we're just supposed to eat soy? God gave us how many varieties of blueberries? I like every one. So I think the problem comes if we say, oh, we're going to eat soy. We're going to get one. In the body, there is a byproduct of metabolism called homocysteine. And imagine taking a piece of barbed wire and dra- dragging this piece of barbed wire through the s- inside of a soft rubber hose. What happens inside the hose? Homocysteine does that to the endothelial linings, the linings of your blood vessels throughout your body. It also damages neurons directly. So elevated homocysteine levels are a independent risk factor of any other thing going on in your body, if you have elevated homocysteine levels, your rate of heart attacks and stroke goes up. Because as the little endothelial linings and these, and these small vessels get nicked, the body repairs that by plate that's coming in coagulating in order to repair those damages. And if you already have some vascular compromise from arteriosclerosis closing the lumen size, then when these little uh, platelets come in to, to close that up, they, they obstruct the lumen and you get little tiny strokes happening and little tiny heart attacks happening and things like that and damaging of the neurons. The body has two pathways to get rid of homocysteine. One pathway is dependent upon B12 and folic acid in combination. The other pathway is dependent upon B6. Now, if you're deficient in these, then you have elevated homocysteines and you have trouble with this. And studies show that vegans are essentially all deficient. The latest studies are showing even in the low range normal of B12 levels, it's still too low to keep these things cleared and you need to be in the moderate to high range of B12 levels. And uh, in order to, to keep these things clear. I think the, the thing, it comes with moderation. Like we eat in moderation. Eat, you know, not just all one thing. Like, you know, with the soy milk, you have the almond milk, you have rice milk, you have a lot of variations of other types of milk. And, you know, it's a catch-22. I mean, you have the soy that has the phytoestrogens, you have the, the meat, the animal products that has that man are not putting, you know, Grow hormones in these things, so you know, catch twenty two. We get it either way. So, what is the principle we're talking about? Doing what's most reasonably healthy to maintain health, given the circumstances you find yourself in. There are people living in third third world countries right now where they eat chicken or they starve. Which would be better, to starve or to eat the chicken? Yes. I mean, we do what's most reasonable. Now, we're not in that circumstance in America. We are very fortunate. We can eat almost anything we want. We have everything available. So we can have very, very healthy, nutritious diets here in America. Um, 
I wish I had time to go into Thursday's lesson about the various things that tried to, in, the various theologies that tried to attack our church in the early formation, like the Holy Flesh movement, the perfectionism movement, date setting, pantheism, spiritualism, Arianism, legalism, all these things that, that were fought off in the early parts of our church, and then, and then discuss with you what, what theological attacks are we currently fighting in today's era, but I'll leave you to study those out on your own. We've got to close. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have invited us to be your intelligent friends. That you have not asked of us to be non-thinking robots who just do what we're told, but want us to understand, reason things out, develop that higher education and the ability to know the right from the wrong. We ask your spirit will enlighten our minds. May we ultimately see you clearly as revealed in Jesus. May we be so settled into the truth that we can become your agents. We are ready. Send us, Lord, to lighten this world so that we can see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.